0: Welcome to More Than Medicine, where Jesus is more than enough for the ills that plague our culture and our country. Hosted by author and physician Dr. Robert Jackson and his wife Carlotta and daughter Hannah Miller. So listen up, because the doctor is in.
1: Welcome to More Than Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Robert Jackson, bringing you biblical insights and stories from the country doctor's rusty, dusty scrapbook. Well... Here we are again. I'm bringing to you uh, discussions, rational, calm discussions on a multiplicity of issues. And we are covering the Southeast like the dew covers Dixie. Well, I'm delighted to have on our program today Dr. Pierre Corey, who is calling in, I think, from New York. Is that correct, Pierre?
2: Well, I am from New York, but
1: I now live in Wisconsin. In Wisconsin. All right. So I, I was just diagnosing that from the phone call. So you're in Wisconsin, and I'm delighted that you've called in. And I'd love for you to tell my listeners a little bit about yourself and a little bit about your background. And then I have a whole list of questions that I'm just dying to ask you. So please go ahead and tell my listeners about yourself.
2: Yeah, sure. So I am a board certified, uh, internist, uh, intensivist and pulmonologist. So I'm an ICU specialist and a lung specialist. And, um, you know, I, uh, started my career in New York. I ran a, an ICU in lower Manhattan, uh, for about 10 years and then, uh, got recruited to the university of Wisconsin where I was the critical care service chief and the head of the ICU there. Um, I was there for about seven years and, um, and then in COVID, um, you know, I got uh, really inspired by COVID, and I would say that I became a, a clinical expert in the, the treatment of COVID and all its phases. And I did that along with my colleagues in an organization that we co-founded, which was the COVID-19 Critical Care Alliance, um, a nonprofit that we've dedicated to medical education. Now we were expanding beyond COVID, but for a couple of years we were focused on uh, protocols for prevention, uh, early treatment, hospital treatment, and now my main focus is. Um, on treating long COVID with uh, also post COVID vaccine injury. And uh, for that, I have a private telehealth practice, myself and my partner, uh, that can be accessed at DrPierreCorey.com. And um, I spend all my time trying to help these patients who are still quite sick, uh, most of them from the vaccines, but uh, we we also have a fair amount of long COVID patients and um, one of the most complex uh, diseases I've ever encountered. And uh, we have lots to learn, but we're making really good progress.
1: Well, that's amazing. That is amazing. Well, now, Dr. Corey, you and your colleagues at the FLCCCA have been advocating treatment for ICU patients with COVID, and later acute therapy for anyone with acute COVID that has been, and and your your treatment protocols have proven to be spot-on, accurate, and effective Mm -hmm. treatments. So, so much so that you've been dubbed Lucky Pierre by friends and antagonist. Now, let me ask you this. Was your success really luck? No,
2: not even close. Not even close. You know, Robbie, you know this. If I'm going to come out in public and, you know, make a a recommendation on, on treatment, you know, I'm gonna make sure my ducks are in a row and I know what I'm doing. I, I'm not a careless, uh, you know, you have to be very careful if you're going to give people medical guidance. And that's right. We, we were deeply studied on and any guidance or any recommendations we made, you know, we we ensured there was sufficient data and clinical experience to to recommend everything we made. And uh, you know, we haven't made a mistake. The only mistake we made was one of omission, hmm. which is that uh, I have to humbly admit, we were late. To really accepting uh, that hydroxychloroquine was effective, we we initially fell fell prey to the same thing that a lot of the country did, which is we believe those you know big randomized controlled trials in those big journals, yeah. and we put a lot little bit too much emphasis on those trials, and so it took us a while to figure out that that was um, you know that was one of the first frauds. You know, yeah. Robert, we're going to talk about my book, right? And my yeah, we are. War. We will and get there in a minute. Yeah. No, I just want to make the point that, you know, I think someone else could write the book, The War on Hydroxychloroquine, because it was the same war, same tactics, same, yeah. same results.
1: Yeah. Well,
2: now, but oh, well, let I- me mention one more thing, Robert, not to, you know, blow myself up too big. But, you know, I do want to sort of say that, you know, before COVID and before we founded this organization, myself and my colleagues, we were really well known in our specialty. I mean, you know, Paul Marrick is the most published practicing intensivist in the history of our specialty. Um, you know, he has an H index of something in the 70 or over 100. I mean, Nobel Prize winners have H indexes of like 30. You know, and that's an index of, of how impactful your your research and publications have been. Umberto Maduri, my other colleague, uh, he's world expert on the use of corticosteroids and critical illness. And myself, I was one of the pioneers in a, in a field of critical care medicine, which was called uh, critical care ultrasonography uh, or point of care ultrasonography, where we taught doctors how to use ultrasound to make life-saving diagnosis. And I wrote a textbook that now it's in second edition, seven languages. It's been translated. It's a very popular textbook. And I was, I was well known for that around the country. I taught around the country for years, but uh, you know, in COVID, uh, <laughs> some of those stars can, can drop pretty quickly. If, if you go against the grain.
1: Oh, I know I've experienced that very same thing. I'll I tell you a, a little anecdote I, at, a, at our local hospital, one of my personal friends and patients ended up in the ICU with long COVID, with, with COVID, and yeah. um, he was on a ventilator for close to two and a half months. And uh, the protocol, of course, would not allow him to be treated with with ivermectin. Well, yep. his his family went to court, and a local judge said, "No, this is a right to treat state, and the hospital yeah. has to treat him with ivermectin." Well, they said, if you can find a doctor in the system that would be willing to treat him, none of our ICU doctors will treat him with ivermectin. Well, yep. well, many years ago, one of my father, my father was a family doctor. One of my father's friends, uh, my father and this friend, his, they helped to start the American Academy of Family Practitioners way, way, way back. He told me he said, Dr. Jackson, Robert, don't ever surrender your ICU privileges. He said, mm. don't surrender any privileges for any reason. Well, I hadn't treated a patient in ICU in 20 years, but I'd always maintained my ICU privileges. Every year I would sign up for them. Well, yep. so th- so this family came to me and said, "Will you treat Chris. This was my friend. And I said, well, I-, I have ICU privileges. And they said, well, we have to have a doctor who can administer ivermectin. So the hospital administration was astounded when they found out that there was a family practitioner who still had ICU privileges. Ah. So I go up there every day, Pierre, for two and a half months, crush up 30 milligrams of ivermectin and pushed it down his NG tube. <laughs> well, get yep. this. In, in three days after starting it, his COVID encephalopathy resolved. And exactly. ultimately, ultimately... They told they told me personally that he would not survive, but he did. They told me he would need a lung transplant, which he did not. And yep. then he ultimately left home, left the hospital, and went home with his family. And he's out there working full time, fishing with his buddies, and it's a miraculous thing. But here's part of the part, part story: his ICU intensivist was afraid to death to even be associated with me. He was afraid to be around me. And I gave him the ICU protocol that you guys promoted. And when yeah. he saw it, he looked at me and he said, where did you get this? I said, I got it off the internet. He looked at all of the, the footnotes. I mean, it's like 300 footnotes attached to it. Yeah. He read through all of this. He said, I, I know all these doctors. I know all these articles. I know these people. And he he was totally astounded, Pierre, by the research that went into that protocol. And he folded it up, put it in his pocket, and he carried it with him everywhere he went. But the hospital would not allow the high-dose vitamin C infusion or the thiamine or anything else. The only thing they allowed was the ivermectin that I gave him every day.
2: Yeah. Let, let me say a couple of things about that. So was the attorney, do you remember if the attorney's name was Ralph Larigo?
1: No, we consulted with him, but it was a South Carolina attorney, Lauren okay, Martell. Lo-
2: local attorney. Cause you know, I, I want to mention Ralph cause you know, Ralph took the first case in the country is in January of 21. Um, soon after my testimony and, uh, you know, he ended up taking 200 cases over the next year and 80 cases, went to court and he was winning the judge's orders early on. But then the hospital started to really bring out the teams of lawyers and they fought back tooth and nail. And, you know, and they were doing stuff like, like like kind of happened in your case, which is, you know, the hospital would respond to the judge. Oh, we we don't have a a doctor on staff who's willing to sign that order. They don't want to treat. And so then the family would have to find either the primary care physician or some physician in the community who'd be willing to treat. And then Sometimes it would be someone who didn't have privileges. So then the, the doctor, the hospitals would kind of block, uh, would not grant privileges quickly. Yep. Then then when we did find a doctor, then you found that they said, oh, we don't have any nurses who are willing to give no, that. The medication.
1: nurses wouldn't help me at all. I, I, yeah. had, I had to go up there every single day, crush the pills and give them myself.
2: You're one of the heroes. I mean, there, there's a, another uh, physician in Chicago named Alan Bain the treating physician in a number of Ralph's cases. And he was like driving around Chicago at night after his office hours, administering the, um, the ivermectin to patients. And, but here, here's, here's the, the most tragic thing about it all. So Ralph had 80 cases that went to court. He um, won 40 and lost 40. Mm-hmm. Now, are you sitting down? Cause I'm going to tell you what happened in those cases. So in the 40 cases, that he lost only two patients survived oh, wow. in the 40 cases that he won 38 survived 38 out of the 40 got out of the hospital in the cases that he won he was successfully able to administer ivermectin and the last thing i want to say about that is that very good mechanistic and physiologic reasons why patients improve rather rapidly after ivermectin you know, and it's just truly shocking about all of the difficulties Ralph had. But you know, when you saw how successful he was, and he was able to get a doctor and a nurse, or a nurse to administer, you know, a doctor to order and a nurse to administer. I mean, the, the, almost all the patients survived. And when he couldn't get the ivermectin, almost all of them died.
1: That that is shocking. It makes it makes me ill to even hear that. It,
2: it, it is. It is right. And and you know, all of this insanity with these randomized controlled trials. I mean. Just look at that as a randomized control trial. Literally 40 cases. 40
1: that's all cases. you need to know. That's all any yep. judge needs to know.
2: Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, it's, it's you know, I, I appreciate your case and that you were one of those doctors who was, you know, willing to help out that patient and, and you had your privileges. I mean, that, that's a really cool story. And, <laughs> and uh, you're a hero. You he saved his life. Well,
1: let me ask you another question. When did you first begin to realize, Pierre, that you couldn't trust the medical establishment or the big pharmacy companies, the CDC, the NIH, the academia—all the entities that you and I grew up in medicine, trusting—all of our medical career. When, when did you suddenly wake up and realize, you know what? I can't, I can't trust them anymore.
2: Right. That's such a good question because I would say it was slow, it was iterative and slow. And for me, it really started. it I mean, obviously, it started after ivermectin you know we we were in the corticosteroid battle in the spring of 2020 i mean that that's you know i testified in the senate in may of 2020 basically telling the world that you needed to use corticosteroids in the hospital face of the disease and i did that at a time when every national and international health care agency was saying don't use corticosteroids and i i didn't know that was fraud then or corruption then and that's still a case that has to be investigated and it is being investigated but Anyway, I didn't know that was fraud and corruption. I just thought, <laughs> Robert, I literally thought that doctors were just being stupid and just didn't understand that it worked yeah. and they were waiting for their trials. I, I just thought it was more kind of ignorance and just the state of medicine just being sort of just, you know, status quo. and it's just the, iner-
1: the inertia of big, big, the, yeah. big, big medicine.
2: Yeah, and the effects of this, you know, obsession with evidence based medicine. I, I just thought it was something around that. Like it was more of an intellectual problem than than a corruption problem. So so that's where I started in May. You know, I didn't know the complicity in this unholy alliance that we're gonna talk about. But, you know, after I testified about Ivermectin, you know, the things that happened were just so strange and alarming. But like I thought when I gave my testimony, to, you know, in Senator Johnson's, uh, you know, Senate hearings, and and the testimony went viral. Suddenly, the entire world seemingly was talking about ivermectin because there were organizations all over the world that were translating my t- testimony, and suddenly everybody had a, this interest in ivermectin. I thought, if you if you believe this or I literally thought at the time that our paper, I had a review paper with had 32 trials, 16 randomizers immense amount of data. I had health ministry data showing how, how well it was working. I thought it would be systematically deployed in the prevention and treatment of COVID worldwide. And that's not what happened. You know, what happened was that within two days of my testimony, the Associated Press wanted to interview me. And we were so excited because we said, what better way to get the evidence of efficacy of Ivermectin out to the world than the Associated Press? I do this interview. It's a 20-minute interview. I give her all of this data. The article comes out the next day, and it's a complete hit job on ivermectin, just lumping it in with hydroxychloroquine, another medicine to, to be debunked. Then they talk about some couple that died after taking some fish cleaner that had chloroquine in it. I mean, it was, it was, outrageous.
1: I remember, it was outrageous. I remember that article. I do.
2: Yeah. And, and we, we filed an ethics complaint against the Associated Press. We, we, we were shocked that, that this could happen. I mean, that's how naive I was at the time. Yeah, And that happened within two days. And then within the next two months, so many things happened against us and to us. Like, for instance, my review paper, which passed peer review, three rounds of rigorous peer review with top level scientists reviewing it. And it was supposed to be published at a rather high impact journal called the Frontiers in Pharmacology. And they wouldn't publish it. And people were dying. It was the the, the winter of 2020, 2021. Mm-hmm. And they were refusing to publish it. And I finally accused the Journal of scientific misconduct because we, we, we kind of figured out that the fix was in against ivermectin. And uh, it turns out that the editor then talked to my issue editor and they retracted it without peer review. They, they did not provide us reasons why. They did not give us the opportunity to revise the paper, which is normal. If, if a peer reviewer objects to your paper, you revise it. And they just retracted it. We've And in, in cumulative careers of myself and my colleagues, think over 1500 peer reviewed publications we'd never had anything retracted and n- never you, you can't retract anything unless there's known fraud or, or plagiarism and so so basically to, to your question that's when i started to suspect that there were forces out there that were working through not only media um, but journals you know we'll come to the agencies in a second you know i saw the agency behavior as well but they're really all kind of a part of the same system. And and then I learned, you know, for me, like the, the really, um, and I talk about this in the book, but like the, the, the day that I'll never forget occurred early of March, 2021. And I got this email from a guy named professor William B. Grant. He's one of the most published uh, researchers on vitamin D science in the world and didn't know who he was writes me an email. He says, dear Dr. Corey, what they are doing to ivermectin, they've been doing to uh, vitamin D for decades, and then he included a link to an article which was called the Disinformation Playbook. And um, you can Google it, still number one hit when you Google it. But I click on this article, and I was transformed. Like, literally, it, it basically described that when industries encounter science that's inconvenient to their interest. They deployed disinformation tactics and they laid out five tactics. They're named after American football plays like the fake, the fix, the diversion, the screen, the blitz. And I'm reading these examples of how industries deployed these tactics to de- bury, suppress, distort or, or contradict inconvenient science. And it was like it, it was like a click went off. I was like, that's what's happening. The light bulb this is- went off. Yeah, it was a light bulb went off. It was like fireworks. And, and I mean, I was like, we, myself, the FLCCC, we are in the middle of a massive disinformation campaign against Ivermectin. And, and all of the examples in that article, I was like, they did that yesterday. They, they did that three times last week. You know, they're trying to do that now. And, and I saw it suddenly I could see clearly a, what a world that I had thought had gone mad suddenly made a lot of sense and it was kind of scary because it made sense in a way that you know uh you know led to some really uncomfortable insights now would you
1: call it the the disinformation what playbook
2: yeah the disinformation playbook and it's it's uh it's an article written by um it's put it's on an organization it's on a website by the organization for concerned scientists okay and they wrote this article in 2017 and I mean, this was well before COVID. And and just so you know that the history of these kind of campaigns, I mean, the, the ones who pioneered it the, the most was the tobacco industry. They used disinformation for 50 years to try to bury the evidence of, uh, you know, the harms of tobacco. Uh, and, understand. and then, you know, so all industries do this. They use the same playbook. And it's not just pharma. It's coal and gas. It's agriculture. You know, it. they all do it. And and that's how they that's how they can conduct their business without resistance, because they can very distort science. That's inconvenient. And, you know, the the point is, um, so I I learned about disinformation and then I learned about um, the history of disinformation campaigns on repurposed off patent drugs. Mm -hmm. And I mean, they've been doing that for decades. I mean, the pharmaceutical industry is totally built. I mean, their business model, their Achilles heel is off patent drugs. They need you to get the pricey new patented pharmaceutical. That's how that, that, that industry is rapacious. It's criminal. It's one of the most profitable on earth. And they, they know those campaigns and they've been doing it in oncology and cardiology, uh, psychiatry for decades. And so here I am, I realized that myself and my little organization, the bad news bears, you know, we are in the middle of a global (laughs) disinformation campaign by the pharmaceutical industry. Against a drug that is the most threatening in history, because think about it, Robert. Ivermectin threatened a market that had opened up for that criminal industry overnight, north of a hundred billion. If you if you total the vaccines taxlovid, molnupiravir, monoclonal antibodies, you name it. It's massive markets opened up yep. with COVID. Yep. And ivermectin threatened all of it. I mean, ivermectin is pennies to manufacture. Oh, yeah. Every country has manufacturers. It's ubiquitous. It's it's available everywhere. And never have they ever been so threatened and never have they fought so hard. It would have cut the
1: struts out from every one of those big big new products. Oh.
2: Oh yeah, you would have demolished, obliterated the profits, and and most particularly is the vaccine campaign. Yep. Right. So the vaccine campaign was just rolling out, and you know I got to mention vaccines. So that's why you know the book is called The War on Ivermectin, and I consider the book really an in-depth, you know, birds, you know, a uh, front-row seat to that campaign. Because once I knew what was going on, I started to document. And I just wrote and wrote and I wrote notes and I just saw everything that they were doing and pulling and my understanding got better. And so it's kind of uh, the book is it's a personal narrative. It's autobiographical. I talk about, you know, the formation of the FLCCC, my my things that we encountered in our careers and then, you know, what what the war on ivermectin was like and and, uh, how we fought it. Um, And so I I consider the book also the central part of the book. It's really a, a case study of how disinformation is practiced. And I nailed them on everything, Robert. I nailed them on everything. I documented everything they pulled, every single tactic, uh, how they pulled it, who pulled it. Um, I have names in there. Like I know who's complicit in a lot of those actions. And so um, I I think it's a case study for the world because unless you realize that this is happening, not only in medicine, but it, it happens around a lot of other issues facing society today, there are massive vested corporate interests Who don't want you to know the truth about what's going on and what's going to affect your health and the science behind what they're selling?
1: All right, now tell tell my listening audience the full name of your book and how they can get that book.
2: Yeah, so it's called The War on Ivermectin, uh, the medicine that saved millions and could have ended the pandemic. Um, You can buy it on Amazon um, or you can buy it from um, Del Big Tree's ICANN organization, so ICANN.org. and uh you know, also there's uh you know, and then then it's in bookstores, but it's having a problem in bookstores. Someone just wrote to me today that they they heard that their local Barnes and Nobles had it. They went, they couldn't find it, they were looking everywhere and it was like buried on like the bottom shelf. And he, he was pretty convinced it's on purpose. And yeah. I also have getting reports like libraries won't order it. Um they say we're not interested. And so like there's there's, you know, a part of part of the book, it's really you know, most of the campaigns it's about propaganda and censorship, and the censorship that that came out in COVID and that continues today yeah. is, is it's unprecedented. I mean, it's global, right? The consolidation of media with you know owned by like five companies. I mean, once once the media gets the memo, yeah,
1: you know, it's you're over. Locked down. It's over. It's over. Well, now um, I keep I keep hearing that your book keeps climbing and climbing on the bestseller <laughs> list. How's that
2: going? Yeah, it's going pretty well. It, it's selling and. You know, I, you know, I, I also have, I should mention my co-writer name is Jenna McCarthy. And I actually was working with a couple of co-writers that just didn't work out. And I met her and she was so brilliant. And she really helped craft like a, a very easy to read, like fast paced narrative. And uh, people love the book. They, I've heard so many people say they can't put it down and,
1: well, I, well, well, let me say I'm the same way. I, I started it, and and I'm halfway through, and I I was up way past my bedtime <laughs> reading this book, and I want you to know it's a fascinating read. It's a it's a fast read. It's full of information. Now it, it's emotionally challenging. I want you to know yeah. I, I'm I'm uh, I was angry. You
2: lived it, Robert. I, I did. I lived
1: it. it, and I and I was very upset so much of the time reading this because I. I it brought back a lot of hurtful memories, yep. but, but it's a good read. And, and And my listening audience needs Pierre; they need to get this book and read it because it, it's not that technical. It it it's written in layman's language, and and my listeners will understand what physicians have gone through and what folks on the front line, like yourself, endured in the in the early stages of this war. Yep. So I I, I commend it. I commend it highly to my listeners.
0: You've been listening to part one of Dr. Jackson's interview with Dr. Pierre Corey. Dr. Corey is an award-winning board-certified specialist in pulmonary disease, internal, and critical care medicine. To find out more about Dr. Jackson, order one or all of his four books, or to schedule him to speak at your next event, go to jacksonfamilyministry.com. And don't forget to like, follow, and share this podcast with family and friends. Also, if you found this to be a blessing or got something beneficial out of today's podcast or any of Dr. Jackson's episodes, please leave us a five-star review and tell us about it. And remember to listen to part two of the interview with Dr. Corey next week.